singer, actor, the consummate entertainer. Justin Timberlake is a guy who makes it all look easy. Growing up in Memphis, music was everywhere around Justin. It was clear to his mom, Lynn, that he had a gift. When he was just 11 years old, she took him to the mall for an audition on Star Search. Remember that show? Even though he didn't win, without a doubt, a star was born. He was cast on MMC, the all-new Mickey Mouse Club, alongside future superstars, including Ryan Gosling, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera. Then Justin was asked to join a brand new boy band. The group was NSYNC. And before he was 18, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. But music has always been just a part of what he does. An accomplished actor, he starred in over a dozen films already. And his appearances on Saturday Night Live are almost legendary. He is a natural talent. But as Justin tells us, that gift didn't guarantee success. What matters is how hard you're willing to work at it. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Justin Timberlake. I did an interview not too long ago. When we first sat down, he said, you know, I'm supposed to hate you. And I said, well, we've gotten off to a good, on a good start. What do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, you like you do this and you make it look easy and you do that and you make it look easy. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. What you're talking about is literally the hardest thing that I've ever done. To make it look like it comes easy, that is the hard part. That's where all the time in front of the mirror, all the time with that instrument in your hand, your fingers bleeding, your feet cramping, you're exhausted, I mean, that was something I remember my parents telling me, you know, the idea that if you put in more than 100%, if you put in 115%, then there's a good chance you're gonna end up getting back somewhere in the 90s. That made sense to me. And the idea that something worth having was worth putting all of yourself into it. Practice, rehearsal, working on it when no one's looking, getting comfortable in it, so that when you step on that stage, you're ready. And then you can literally forget all of that and just be in the moment and do something different. Do something original, do something different every time. Because all of that work you've put in has given you that base. That base is there and, and you're just, you're just there. I really didn't start to find my voice as a person until I started singing. Then until I was about eight years old, I just looked at my feet, walked around looking at my feet. It wasn't that I was particularly shy. I just, I guess I just feel, felt like I didn't fit in. And so I didn't know what to say. Growing up around Memphis, Tennessee was an interesting place because it's known for its music. It's such a melting pot of culture. The home of the blues, the birthplace of rock and roll. And so there was a lot of melting pot of culture artistically, but with that melting pot of culture comes melting pot of races. And for me growing up, I didn't fit in so much with the black kids because I was white, plain and simple. And I didn't fit in so much with the white kids because I liked what was, you know, so-called black music. 
But growing up there, I always felt like I was different. And it wasn't until I started singing in church where, you know, that's the perfect place to get the courage to sing because even if you're bad, everybody just says amen at the end, whether you're good or bad. <laughs> You'd be completely out of tune. Oh, praise God, amen at the end. But that's where I really found the courage to kind of come out of my shell. And, and I learned more about who I was as a person being on stage than I did just having normal interactions with people my own age. One of the malls in Memphis, they were having star search auditions, which if you're watching this right now and you're, and you're too young to know what that is, it was the original American Idol. And at that time, Garth Brooks was like bigger than bubble gum. And so I auditioned with two songs, Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman and Garth Brooks' Two of a Kind, maybe? And I landed a spot on Star Search. I think I was 10 at the time. When I got there, we met with the show producers and they set you down and you could tell it was a well-oiled machine. And they said, you know, this is what you're gonna sing. This is what we would like you to wear. I was blown away, I, you know, that everything was already so prearranged. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed because I really wanted to sing When a Man Loves a Woman, but they were interested in me singing a country song, which I was happy to do as well, because I was just excited to be on this show. I got to meet Ed McMahon. It's funny, you know, I remember saying to my mom, well, we get to go to Disney World for a weekend. And that became like the silver lining. We got in the car and drove back to Memphis and it was just me and my mom and it flashed on the TV, like in between commercials. It was like one of those 10 to 15 second spots, like open call auditions for the Disney channels, MMC. And that was it. And it was said the location and, and uh, where it was going to be happening. And me and my mom were both literally watching the TV and we kind of looked at each other. And, and we drove to this place on the way home because we just thought it would be fun. They gave you a monologue, a comedic monologue to learn an hour before the audition. You sang a song. And then they sort of would put on music and you would just, you would dance. I think I pulled every thriller move out I could. But I got a call back for that audition to go down to a casting camp in Orlando. Funny enough, because I had just come from there. That's where Star Search was filmed. I lost the first time on Star Search and if I would have won even once, I would have never landed that gig. I learned a lot in that weekend about what the entertainment business was and how a door shuts, a window opens. You know, I was learning all these kind of really good life lessons about what success and what, what defeat and all of those things meant and that they really didn't matter. The funny thing about that television show is really only had two seasons. That group of kids that today is now known as the group that came from that TV show, I mean, we really were only on for two seasons. So it couldn't have been that successful. <laughs> but it was an extremely valuable learning time for all of us, how to be in front of a camera and in front of a studio audience and what works and what doesn't work. I mean, at that age, you're a sponge at whatever you're doing. It was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work too. I mean, you learn how to work and how hard comedy can be and how, you know, uh, challenging it is to put a show together in one week. But it's funny, it's very similar to how Saturday Night Live is put together. The difference is 
I mean, God bless those producers. You're working with 20 children, not 20 adults that act like children, 20 actual children. <laughs> so that's why I think I started to care more about the process of acting and all these different takes on how to be an actor. And I was getting the class firsthand. My class was the stage. My class was the studio. My class was in front of a camera. It was a really valuable time, but when that show ended, I was, uh, you know, I was 12 and I went, I went back home and went to school. And played basketball like every other kid, but you're not like every other kid. You're that kid from the TV show who must think they're better than all of us. So I became really adept at fitting in with everyone. I would find common ground with everyone be because I had to work harder to, to make friends when I was a kid because I was really looked at as different. The most valuable piece of advice I ever got was from my mother. And she said to me, she said, I, I want you to know that you have a gift. None of us know where it came from, <laughs> but you have a gift. And that gift is going to make your life more challenging in a way because it's going to test your character. She said, you know, just because you have this thing that you do really well that's instinctive and, and natural to you, it doesn't mean that you are better than anyone else. And to the point, you're gonna have to work harder to realize that. I had a booking agent, sort of a commercial agent in Atlanta and she also represented another guy, and his name was Chris Kirkpatrick. And then got this call from Chris that said, I'm starting a group. <laughs> I think that was kind of like what he said. I'm starting a group, and there's a guy down here who will fund the whole thing. And it was one of those things, once again, looked at my mom and said, well, I guess we can go to Disney World another weekend. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And once again, found myself in Orlando. And also, we called him back and said, well, there's, there's another guy, too, who I think could be great for this. His name is JC. And we all three found ourselves sitting in front of each other in Orlando. And it was kind of a whirlwind. I was still only 14. So it was, it was a bit surreal. There was a guy who was working at Universal Studios and one of the live shows that we had heard had some kind of musical ability and, and his name was Joey Fatone and we met with him and a weekend turned into a week and we had the four of us but we didn't have a bass singer and my old vocal coach when I was 10 years old from Memphis, Tennessee, who called him up and said, do you know any guy that could re like sings like he's a natural bass singer? And he said, I do know one guy but his mother will never let him do it. And uh, we flew Lance and his mom down to Orlando and decided, hey, let's give this a shot. And the next thing you know, we were a group. We didn't know anything about anything, but we knew we could sing together. We were just happy to be in the studio and making music and involved with these kind of huge hit makers at the time and learning. We were all just constantly learning from the process and we all really cared about it. And we got this record deal, and the next thing you know, we're touring the world. We started over in Europe, and we started playing these festivals, and things started getting bigger and bigger. And then we came back to America and had this one television special. And next thing you know, our, you know, our first album's gone diamond. We were kind of like, 
What is happening? <laughs> I think we all got our first check for like $10,000. And all of us looked at each other and I was like, does this make any sense to you? <laughs> and that was my first lesson in the music business. In the 1990s, boy bands were huge. Remember the 90s, y'all? Producer Lou Pearlman was the mastermind behind some of the most successful groups, the Backstreet Boys, O-Town, and the one that eclipsed them all, NSYNC. Their debut album sold 11 million copies, and Justin thought he had made it until he opened his paycheck. We decided we wanted to do an audit, which is a funny word between partners in any business involving money. The guy who was funding us at the time, he begrudgingly did the audit, obviously, and it was worse than we thought. So I'm 17, 18 at the time, and we decided to take him to court. All we really wanted was the name NSYNC. We wanted our name so that we can continue working. We didn't care about anything that we had lost out on with that first album. It was at a time where we were really starting to explode. This was a tough thing to go through because we didn't know if we were gonna, we, we thought, well, we're gonna have to split up. You know, as the facts started to come out, it became blatantly obvious that we were getting screwed. And the judge awarded us our name and we were able to move on. Throughout that whole sort of trial period and discovering how much money we were losing, I learned that there's a time for friendship and there's a time for business. You could say anything, but what is in the fine print is, it's, it's in black and white. It was a big deal for us. And it was the thing that influenced the whole next album. We named that album No Strings Attached because it was just representative of the freedom we felt. We had moved on and made the record and this is back when they had TRL. The week of the release of that album, we went to TRL and all of Times Square was literally shut down. I mean, eight, nine, 10, 12 blocks of just kids. And I remember looking at JC and saying, remember this moment, because there's a very good chance nothing like this will ever happen again. I've never seen anything that big. That was when we started to realize that things were bigger than what we even were as a, as a group. We left TRL, we went straight to the airport, and I just remember our road manager at the time got the call and they said, 1.1, 1.1, and we were like, oh my God, we sold a million albums in a week? And, and he was like, no. You sold a million albums today. <laughs> we were like, huh? And, uh, you know, that album went on to, I believe it's still the biggest first week ever. So it was, it was, it was an interesting time. But uh, I remember feeling like nothing would ever be like that again. From 2000 to 2001, things started to change. And we had gone from arenas to stadiums. We were playing Giant Stadium, the old Giant Stadium, and it was our fifth night in a row. So you're talking about roughly 200 to 300,000 people in five nights, collectively. And that's when I said, 
I don't wanna do this anymore. I really felt like it was time for me. I was 19, about to turn 20, and I felt like it was time for me to really figure out who I was as an artist, really find my own voice. Because I had done this for six years with four other guys, and it just felt like I would wake up every morning feeling more and more of an urge to step out on my own and try, try my own hand uh, as, a, as a musician just by myself. It was happening all around me. What, what are you doing? Why wouldn't you ride this out? You know, you're the biggest group in the world. Why would you walk away from this? It's one of the best slash worst things that I have ever done because it was, it, was, it was bittersweet. It was hard to kind of say goodbye to that era, but we could, I felt it changing. I felt music changing and I felt myself changing. And the first, the first real seed of that was this song I had written called Gone. Uh, it ended up on the, our third and last album. And it was the first song I kind of cut by myself and then brought it to the guys and included them. So we were having an A&R meeting for the third NSYNC album at that time. And, and I said, well, I have this other song, but I originally wrote it for Michael. I originally wrote that song for Michael Jackson. I just got word that, that they had turned the, the song down. So we decided to cut it, but it was one of those songs where it felt a little more personal to me because I had written it for like the biggest artist of all time. <laughs> I guess Michael did hear it and called me on the phone and said he wanted to cut the record, but he wanted it to be a duet between himself and I. And I said, well, it's already out. You know, we've already cut this song as an NSYNC record. I'm on the phone, I'm literally punching myself in the face because I said, I can't do that. Could we do like a NSYNC featuring Michael Jackson or Michael Jackson featuring NSYNC, and he was very absolute about the fact that he wanted it to be a duet between himself and I. And I think it's the first idea that I ever got about doing something on my own because it was the first time I'd ever really felt the confidence to do it. And I knew that the music that I was interested in and was writing at the time was different than what we had previously done. And it felt like a real departure. I never told anybody that Michael story. You look at me, you should understand that I am America. <laughs> you know, I loved Nirvana when I was 14, but I also loved Missy and Timbaland, but I also loved D'Angelo, but I also loved Tribe Called Quest, but I still loved the Beatles and the Stones. So I was influenced by, you know, I mean, Pearl Jam, I could go on and on. Growing up around Memphis, Tennessee, you didn't get a lot of the trends until they sort of passed through middle of, middle of America. We didn't get every concert. Every concert didn't come through Memphis, Tennessee at that time. And if it did, I, I didn't get to see it because we were on a budget. <laughs> we were on a budget. I never saw Michael Jackson perform live until I was on stage with him. I only saw, you know, videos of it. So. The kids where I grew up, it wasn't Michael Jackson. It was Michael Jackson's songs, you know? It wasn't Garth Brooks. It was Garth Brooks' songs because we had got the radio. 
So I grew up loving movies. I grew up loving songs. It was never like the actor or the musician or the pop star per se. It was always the movies, the TV shows and the songs. It was always the thing that was being made. That always mattered to me more. And I wanted to know how that happened. So that's why I think I started to care more about songwriting. I didn't feel like I was part of the teen pop scene anymore. That's why the record was what it was. You have a magazine like Rolling Stone writing, his first solo album is an album, you know, that's gonna make or break all of the, the scene. But I was looking back on all the music that influenced me when I was, even before I was 10, that naturally influenced me. You know, Marvin Gaye's voice and Donny Hathaway's voice and, you know, Al Green's voice and, and Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson. Working on my solo record and having it uh, come out and be what it was, was really the first vindication for me that I was going to make a career out of doing exactly what everybody told me I should not be doing. I had to convince people that Sexy Back was my song. People didn't even think it was me, they thought it was a joke. I had to call up a couple of radio programmers and say, no, seriously, this is my song. I got in a full-on argument with the president of the label I was signed to at the time. This song will never work. I said, just put the song out. I agreed to shoot a video for the second single within two weeks of putting the song out so we'd have a second single ready to go if the song didn't work. But I believed in it. I believed in what it made other people do. I saw what it made other people do. So I guess there is some risk to that. But you really learn to judge your gut. I only had what, I only had my instinct, which is a powerful thing. It's only human to get caught up sometimes in how something's received. But at the end of the day, it's not going to change your ambition. It's not going to change mine, for sure. And sometimes with movies, some of them are received better than others, and some of them are not received well at all, but it doesn't change why you were there. People will judge it, and people will they'll like it or not like it, but you can't be responsible for that. You're not meant to do what is easy. You're meant to challenge yourself. You know, my favorite thing to do at dinner time was to make my parents laugh in any way possible. If I could make my parents laugh, then it was a successful evening for me. And I was an only child, so I was the, the spotlight was on me at all times in my house. So that's where I kind of became the clown that I kind of am all the time now. You remember guys like Jerry Lewis and guys like Donald O'Connor. You know, Donald O'Connor was every bit as impressive to me as Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. That performance of Make Him Laugh, I watched that over and over and over again. I just marveled at it. It's a subconscious reference for sure. Anytime I do anything on SNL, those guys who were song and dance artists who could use their physical form to translate something funny. Laughter has this way of, it makes your blood circulate a different way. But to make it happen, you have to get your blood circulating <laughs> twice as fast. When you talk about SNL, there's 200 to 250 people in that audience. If you make those people laugh, that will translate to two and a half to 10 million people on television. That Omeletteville sketch 
that wasn't funny until I put on the suit. Any bring it on down to whatever, Ville, those gloves are the unsung hero of those sketches. Yeah, why wouldn't I want to talk about that? I got a phone call from Mick Jagger, and he says to me, we're doing a benefit. It's going to be this huge festival. We'd love you to come play. Immediately you say, absolutely. I will clear the schedule, whatever you need. Uh, are you sure this is Mick Jagger? And then you get there, and you look at the list of acts and Stones, ACDC, the Guess Who, Rush. And you go down towards the middle of the list, and I see my name with all these <laughs> acts. And I remember looking at the promoter and saying, I don't think I should be here. I walk out on stage, and I mean, every Coors Light and Bud Light can and water bottle. It was like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia with the frogs. It was like one, two, hundred. And we go through the first half of Crime River and it is raining debris. And I am dodging left and right and I'm continuing to sing. <laughs> These guys look like monsters, man. We got to this Zeppelin interlude in Crimea River and either they gave up throwing things or they ran out of things to throw. And then the, the MC came out and was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? And I think he was trying to talk me off the stage and I was like, no, I'm gonna finish my set. And so I made it through the set. I was scheduled to go back on stage with the Stones later on that night. And I, I kind of requested to see Mick. Walked into his dressing room and said, hey man, thanks. I don't think it's a good idea for me to come back out on stage. He just really, he said, well, we would really love for you to stay and, and play the song with us. I said, all right. I said, but I'm literally gluing myself to your hip. You know, like I'm not, wherever you prance off to, I will be right behind you prancing and, you know, come outside stage to watch the stone set. People are still throwing things. It's like the fourth song in the set. People have been throwing things the whole, first three songs of their set. And that's when I realized, okay, these people are just drunk. And I was like, okay. Well, here goes nothing. Walk out and something flies by. It, it literally, we're standing side by side and, and literally a bottle flies between us. We both look at each other and before any of us could even react, Keith Richards comes busting between us and saw the guy who did it. And he points to the guy, and I don't know what he said. You can't say it on the show anyway. But he's banging his chest like Tarzan. He's with the, the guitar, he's banging his chest like Tarzan. You can see him going, throw it at me. Throw it at me. Throw it at me, man. And he walks back to me, and he slaps me high five, and he goes right back to the riff. And I was like, I'll never forget this moment. <laughs> I threw a couple middle fingers up to the appropriate bearded Neanderthals. Uh, <laughs> you put for that whole day, I was distraught because I was like, oh man, you're throwing bottles at me. I threw them at Mick and Keith too. But yeah, you know, I guess I felt really good about finishing my set that day. It was, a, it was a funny story. I drank a whole bottle of whiskey that night after the, that show.
for sure. What have I learned about love? It's a many splendor thing. Uh, <laughs> loving what you do is extremely valuable. There's so many people in this world who don't get to say that. And if you do love it, like I said, if you're not progressing and you're not moving forward within it, then you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. And, and that could be with work, that can be with your wife, that can be with your mother, that can be with your best friend. They still have to know and you still have to know that there's that connection because you've worked to get it to a certain level. You know, specifically with, I'm really young in marriage. <laughs> but another idea that I like that you try to hold on to is just because you get married, it doesn't mean you stop dating. That still keeps it exciting, I think, for me. How sweet is that? Justin married actress Jessica Biel in Italy in 2012, and they work to keep their relationship private. And I could surely respect that. I get the sense that we're going to be talking about Justin Timberlake for many years to come. A natural talent. He doesn't rely on his gifts alone. It's about doing the work and loving it. For him, every day presents a new chance to find out what he's really made of. And for that, Justin, you are a master. To be a master at something, it takes a long time at a high level. It really does. And for me, the way to do that is to always be a beginner. If I'm not learning from something that I'm doing, then that means I've done it before. Do something different. Even if it's within the same medium, you know, to try new things, that makes more sense to me than making a career out of doing the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. I like being a beginner. I like the moment where I can look at everyone and say, I have no idea how to do this. Let's figure it out. You do that with a stage performance as much as you do a character on film. That inspires me. That motivates me. To always be the novice is exciting to me to continue to learn from all the things that I've been lucky enough to do and to be thankful for it. The only way to honor it is to not be complacent, you know, to continue to do the thing that you think you maybe cannot do. Because you, you find out what you're made out of. You find out what material you are made of. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.